Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com, to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. Our guest today is Patrick Chun, founding partner of Juxtapose. Juxtapose is an inception stage investment firm. Some of the companies they founded include Tend, Care of, and Day Forward. Their process for how they build companies is pretty unique, I'll be honest. We discuss their model, why their model is less risky than traditional VC, and his process for finding the right CEO to lead each business. Without further ado, here's Patrick. Patrick, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me, Mike. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Talk to me about why you started and what is Juxtapose. And what was the initial insight that led you to found it? Yeah, so Juxtapose, we're a bit of a unique investment firm that in some ways harkens back to old school venture capital. And the real kind of big differentiator, if I was going to summarize it uh, at a bar over drinks, is we're Rather than um, traditionally investing in companies where someone comes and pitches you an idea, we'll spend years doing work in a space and then go and try to find a world-class athlete to partner with to start that company. And so a couple of things that makes, make our firm strategy different, one, rather than doing a lot of things, which is the traditional venture model, we actually do very few. And so it forces a discipline um, on us to, to really you know, get those things right find the best absolute partners for them and, and really do those things very well. And then the second thing is because we, we take such swings and because our model is usually premised on finding an opportunity in a very complex space, we partner with really, really experienced senior operators. And that's a really, really important part of our model. And so, you know, I think to your question on the insight, I've spent now over 20 years in, in the venture world. And a lot of what I saw in venture was not a good fit for me in the sense that you had to spend a lot of time looking at a lot of things and say no to a lot of things to find the things that you wanted to do. And I think what, what's really unique about our model is it actually gives you the time and the space to go really, really, really deep. And you could almost separate the work that you do, diligencing an opportunity from diligencing the person. And then you could actually combine the best of both worlds to start something, something that you want. I really appreciate you sharing. I know you started off by saying juxtaposes what maybe what traditional venture capital used to be. Do you mind explaining what it was like maybe when venture capital uh, first came up as as a separate and maybe was more formalized into its own asset class and as well as what you think venture capital has become? Sure. Well, we could probably have a longer conversation on the actual history of venture capital right, right. and how it started. But, but you know, I think if you think about, um, you know, in terms of my comment, Venture capital, even 20 years ago, forget 70 years ago, but 20 years ago, was a lot more, I, I think, of a, of a craft investment asset class where you know, the, the venture capitalists themselves you know, developed theses, had to go and search the world, often because, you know, especially pre-internet days where you didn't have information at your fingertips, everyone wasn't tweeting at you. You had to go and actually find the, the people or the spaces that you thought were interesting and often had to construct what you thought the opportunity looked like, right? So, you know, if you had a very strong thesis in the space, you would go and find really interesting entrepreneurial operators. They would probably help you hone the insight maybe. And then you would take that insight 
work with that operator and go build something. And, and I think a lot of great venture funds actually got built because they were able to help construct those, those deals. Um, and there's still other venture funds like Sutter Hill that do this as a core part of what they do. I think, um, and again, over the last 10, 15 years, definitely over the last three to five years, the world has just become a place where information is a lot more available. And if you're an entrepreneur, you're screaming to everyone that you're an entrepreneur. If you're an investor, you're screaming to everyone that you're an investor. And so I think the function of, of the venture capitalist in the traditional sense has evolved a bit, right? And so you know, there's a lot of information that you have to process. There's a lot of inbound that you have to deal with. And in some ways, uh, what used to be hard was finding that really unique thing finding that unique person, no one else was getting to them, convincing them, telling them what venture capital was, and then giving them the capital and support to do it. Now it's a bit more, you kind of know what good companies are out there. You kind of know there's a lot of information out there and you kind of have to do some sifting, but you have to do a lot of selling too. And so that's kind of what I meant. I feel like we're kind of a throwback in that we construct everything. We don't do that many things. We spend a lot of time really kind of hands-on helping to build the deals that we get into. Got it. So what I kind of understand from this is when I think about traditional venture capital, maybe it's a bit more top-down oriented or approach where it might be more specialized in certain categories, right? And you look at what are the opportunities in the categories and maybe go and maybe chase those opportunities there where right now, since founders are pretty aware of what venture capital is and obviously uh, VCs want to attract uh, the best founders. It's a bit more maybe bottoms up in a funny way, where it's hey, you know, entrepreneur, what is the actual insight here that you're doing? And it's a bit less maybe thematic as it used to be, if that's fair to say. Yeah, I think that that's one important vector of differentiation, right? That the kind of top, I like that top down, bottoms up different um, point. I would just add that the second piece. I think even more old school venture, there was a lot of the matchmaking. You know somebody, you've, you've built this strong thesis, you think this person would be perfect, come here, let me help do this together. And that kind of matchmaking in the frenetic world now where deals happen in two days and, not, you know, and we have all these efficient processes where, this, where interesting companies get surfaced and get accelerated, it's a different sport. Yeah, no, that makes sense. How do you think about and why you know your model you believe is maybe less risky than maybe current venture capital? Yeah, I actually think it's it's quite simple. We do more work and we say more we say no to more things and then if for the few things that we say yes on, we set a really bar high for the for the partner that we can hand select to to work with to build that thing. And so I I think, you know, it's it's kind of do a lot of work, say no to more, say yes to less. And then for the thing that you are going to work on, make sure that your bar for the partner that you're working with is very, very high. If you do all of that, you probably will take risk out of the system. Like I, I don't think, you know, so said another way, I don't think that we have some sort of arb- arbitrage against traditional venture capital. Like we don't, we can't change the market to make the market less risky. What we can say is for the two things that we do every year, we're going to make sure that the market is large. We're going to make sure we've spent two to three years doing work. We're going to build tens of prototypes and talk to hundreds of customers. We're going to then validate that you know, from four or five different angles. And after we do all of that and know exactly what the sport is that we want to play, let's go then write out the kind of dream, the, the dream JD, the dream kind of profile of the athlete you want, and then be willing to take 12 to 18 months, 24 months to find that perfect person. Like, and if you do that, I think the, the drawback to the model is, and, and there's a question then is, okay, well, if you could do venture capital less risky, what are the, what's the drawback? The, the, the real trade-off is we just can't do as much. Failure costs a lot more. 
And so if we're going to invest the resources we do in that kind of model, we just have to make more certain that the thing that we do works. We have to make more certain that the person we're working with is the absolute right partner. And we're going to have to invest a lot in that thing to make sure it's successful. So when you say do the work, this is incubating a company and you spend like one or two years validating that this could actually be, you know, a large company and maybe a category defining company in some capacity. And then you actually go out and you pick who is the CEO that you want to be to partner with for this company. Is that is that roughly right in terms of like the early stages? Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. So we call that process concept development. And I think to your point, it, I think the way you describe it is quite quite nice because it juxtaposes a lot of different, sometimes non-overlapping functions together in terms of how we do it. But yes, we'll, we usually start with what we describe as an observation. It's, it's usually some sort of observation of the world. It's a true fact. And then we will do a lot of commercial business, venture capital, private equity style research on that observation. And we'll also do you know, kind of the creative aspects of the user research, the design, the prototyping, the ethnographic research to really see both sides of that picture. And after we do all of that work and we validate that there is a really large opportunity if we pursue this for five to 10 years, there is a very interesting near-in opportunity over the one or two years that we could diligence even more, even more closely because it's a lot easier to understand what's going to happen a month from now, a year from now, two years from now than it is 10. And once you have all of that, then you kind of have an idea, okay, what would be the absolute perfect person and people to bring on to really attack that opportunity? That's then when we say, okay, let's go and do this. Got it. That's really, really interesting. I mean, so start from the very, very beginning. What is even the process in identifying like an observation? Even if you happen to have examples of observation that maybe didn't make it to maybe like the next stage, for example. And how do you kind of define like the different kind of stages in order to eventually for this observation and idea eventually to, to become a company? Yeah, it's um, so... To start, how we define an observation is a true, verifiable fact in the world. And I start with that definition because I think people are often asked, like, okay, you guys, wow, you, you guys come up with ideas. Like, that sounds so amazing. Like, tell me how you come up with an idea and say, okay, well, let's break this down to the component facts. Like, what we actually start with is pr- pretty, it's actually quite simple. It's literally something that you can observe. It is a fact. And if we all agree that that fact is a fact, that's a good starting point for us to talk about if there's opportunity there. Right. And so and then I'll get to a couple of examples, but I would say at the observation level, it could be anything from I'm talking with Mike and he's saying, hey, have you seen this really cool thing? This thing is blowing up. Consumers love it. Like, oh, that's interesting. OK, well, let's get to like, what is the you know, what is the observable fact there that could be the insight for something? It could be a conversation with, you know, with uh, a spouse or even a friend. And they're just telling you about a big pain point they have that probably, by the way, if a friend tells you you know what, I really think the, the roads in New York City suck and there's a lot of potholes in New York City. I don't know how useful of a fact that is, but that is a, that's an observation. We could put that in our observation. What, that observation could kind of filter out to a lot of different things. And, and so we usually start there, which is let's find observable facts in the world that could come from reading, talking with people, research we're doing, companies that we're seeing in the market, and let's distill what it actually is that we're observing. From that observation, we will then go and say, okay, what are insights that you can you can pull out from that observation? And then maybe going to your, your question for an example, this is something that is an observation that was true around 2010, 2011. The iPhone pops up, it becomes this device, 
everyone knows it's this you know computer in your pocket. But the real interesting observation at the time that I think has sparked a lot of really cool companies is for the first time ever, you have a GPS always on device available in every car where someone has a smartphone, right? And, and if you step back and you think about it, like that is actually a pretty interesting observation. Like before you couldn't do anything that looked anything like taxi dispatch because no one had, people had to have taxi dispatch mach- machines in their car for you to communicate with them or you had to call them on their cell phones. Now suddenly you have this device that is always on and has GPS beeping every moment. And so what does that mean? Well, you could see that that observation will tell you, well, there's going to be a lot of radio interference in the car. Can I build something around that? Now we have all this information flowing. We could start to track traffic flow. Well, what can we do for that? Or, you know, probably like, you know, backing into maybe something like an Uber or Lyft, you now have the ability to do on-demand dispatch. You can now send cars to somebody anywhere, anytime, right? And, and so... Uh, you know, that's not an example that led to a company that we built, but I think it's an interesting, it's, it's kind of an analog around with an observation that's as basic as GPS always on in cars, you could have 50 or 100 different interesting insights that can then drive you to a business opportunity. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. How many kind of observations do you typically do or 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 have or or analyze maybe in a three-month period? If that's fair to say, I'm not too sure what the amount of period length is, and then kind of go into insights. And then how many do you do you think about on the insight side that kind of graduate maybe from an observation to a, okay, this is actually a compelling insight uh, through it, and then kind of going down your funnel into, you know what, this is the one thing we want to pursue this year and the next couple of years in order to make turn into an actual business? Yeah, it's it's a good question. And I think like all like a lot of answers to really good questions, there's some nuance there. But I'll give you some numbers because I think at a high level and then I'll I'll tell you what the nuance is. Right. So I would say in a given quarter, we probably process we probably track five hundred to a thousand observations, of which we may talk about ten percent, like somewhere between fifty and a hundred. Right. So in any given quarter, because again, observations are we're not very precious about them because the observation itself is just a fact. Right. And, and the fact, if, if we all can agree on the verified fact, then that is useful because as, as a baseline, at least, no one will argue, Mike, that if Mike, if you said that you really feel like New York City doesn't have great Mexican food, the fact could be that Mike said that New York City doesn't have great Mexican food. That doesn't, you know, whether that's useful or not, it's another question. Right. But we'll track like hundreds of hundreds of, of, of those observations. What will then happen is we will prioritize from that observation some that we think are really useful. And we will start to do diligence and work around those observations to understand if there is a business use case or an insight into that observation that will then maybe be the spark for a bigger opportunity. And so in our process, um, usually that starts with more of a commercial lens. And when I say commercial lens, it's trying to understand from the observation, what is the business opportunity that exists? And so you could see, you know, often that, that I would say looks sometimes like what you think a private equity fund or a venture capital principle would be doing. Like, okay, well, if in that observation, if we've generated some concepts around that observation, one of them is tax, taxi dispatch. Okay, well, well, let's start by saying, what is taxi dispatch? What does that market size look like? What does that industry structure look like? Is it, very ge- is it very geographically bound? Is it national? What are regulations around that space? What are pain points that taxi drivers have? What are pain points that consumers have? You know, what, are thing- what are technologies that have been enabled and not enabled in that space? And so you kind of start by taking that fact and then generating different insights that then allow you to build some sort of idea around the market. 
And then once you have that, I think for us, we we kind of describe the process as a bit of a bow tie. You kind of are generative. You're looking at a bunch of things and then you're starting to become really brutal and we cut a lot, right? And so I would say that out of any, out of a hundred observations we have, if we spend actual time on 10 or 15 of them, out of the 10 or 15, we'll probably cut to three to five very quickly, right? And the reason why I say there's a little bit of nuance here is our funnels are not, nothing ever really dies in our funnel. A lot of things, um, what you basically say is, wow, the place that we ended up going down in that dig ended up in the dead end. But there's usually some learning there. And I could go back to a couple of examples of companies we built where it's been in our process. It took three or four years of work. That didn't mean we had five people working 100% of the time, three to four years. It meant that they kind of were recycled and they, were, they re-entered the funnel because a new insight was, was derived from work. And then later on, we came back to it. And so uh, you know, if we have, let's say, 500 observations and we do work on 50, uh, let's say 50 to 75 of them, we quickly get down to you know, five to 15 things that we're spending a lot of time on. Usually for each of those things, we'll probably do at least four to six months of work before we green light it. And usually we start one to two things a year. And so that, that's kind of the funnel. Um, it's a pretty brutal funnel. Like we just don't do that many things at Juxtapose. Yeah, no, exactly. Because I know you only launch one or two companies a year. So I'm, I'm always kind of intrigued because, I mean, starting off from 500 to 1,000 observations and then narrowing it down to 50 to 100 maybe um, insights, all the way down to that kind of 15 number where you're quite deep into the insight and the observation and kind of go down there. I mean, and I'd imagine when you say things are maybe recycled, is it the type of thing where it's like, okay, this is really interesting. This other insight, this other observation or, or category we find, particularly this might be the right moment in order to, that we're going to concentrate on this idea. Um, maybe we'll table that for for next year per se. Yeah, it's it's a really good question. I would say when things have taken a long time or re-enter the funnel, it's less about us having been intentionally, uh, this is the wrong time. And usually more of, wow, that is an interesting insight. This is going to take more time for us to dig into. And we have this other thing that we're looking at that is deeper in terms of us understanding the opportunity in the space. Why don't we focus on that thing? And and so I'll give you a really good example of this in our portfolio. We have a company called Orchard. It's in the real estate space. Really like the the value proposition to the consumer is to make it as easy and seamless to buy a a a home as it is a car. So really making that transaction a lot simpler. Um, you know, the company is, is now, you know, more than a dozen markets and is, you know, a couple billion dollars of GMV. What's interesting was that company existed in two cycles before we actually started the business. And the real, the interesting, the initial insight that we had that got us down the road of building what is effectively a full stack, vertically integrated brokerage that does, that makes life really easy for consumers was completely unrelated to making lives really easy for consumers. The initial, the initial insight that we had was looking at what was happening in the single-family home world, and where you had these big private equity firms and these big investment firms who were able to, in a matter of years, go and price very accurately, buy, turn around, and sell homes in a bunch of different markets. And we said, wow, like 25 years ago, and this goes to like a core, um, a core concept that that we really are a core. Like principle that we think is really interesting for us to find businesses with this idea that there are obsolete assumptions that a lot of people in the world hold. And if you actually have an insight that breaks that obsolete assumption in a large industry, you can create a lot of value. And in this case, 
what was the obsolete assumption? The obsolete assumption was its own unique thing. And you can never do that at scale for single family homes. You could never have an investment firm that does all that work, that does that for thousands of homes within a quarter in a, you know, in a part of Phoenix. And through a combination of technology, better algorithm and pricing, and better operations, these investment firms basically proved that that was obsolete. That is actually not true. You can do that. And so when we saw that, we said, okay, if that is true, what else, how else does that apply into real estate markets that currently are held back because they continue to hold that obsolete assumption? Wow, that's really, really interesting. What are some insights? You might have, have a, very, a very compelling insight that, okay, there's an opportunity here, but how do you maybe separate that opportunity from making sure that they, this is actually the right time where to actually start this business and not to maybe wait a year or two, if that makes sense? Yeah, we tend to look for look at evergreen industries and evergreen spaces where we think the opportunities are large and where actually trying to be overly precise around timing is a bit of a fool's errand. And so that might sound a little bit of a, a strong statement. Like and what I what I mean is like I think through our insight process, and you know, we do a lot of work that's more commercially oriented, but we do a lot of work that's user-oriented. I actually think, you know, what you say when you say timing is is off, what I hear is there are parts of our concept that actually we can disprove using our work, right? And so when you say timing is off, for example, I think often what I see in the venture markets is you have this great technology, like really interesting technology. It's AI, it's VR, it's Web3 or crypto, but we're not sure actually how that thing will be used, right? In, 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 in your words, that could be an example of maybe that's something where timing is off. In, in our work, what that would mean is like if we, we saw we thought Web3 was a really interesting technology or crypto or, or whatever, machine learning, AR, we would then say, well, we have to have a thesis around how that's going to create value. And the truth is our process would probably, while we talk to a thousand users, we would test these theses. And what would likely happen is people are like, that's really cool, but I'm not ready for that yet. I'm not going to buy that thing. I'm not, I, I don't understand how that's going to change my life. And so that's how we would uncover that the timing is wrong. I think we actually are almost on the opposite side of things, which is let's choose opportunities that are so large, that are usually complex, that are hard to immediately arbitrage, such that if it takes us one or two years to find the right person, we're okay with it. Like it's that big of an opportunity. It's that it's going to be around for that long. In your process for you know creating uh, companies and of course you know launching maybe one to two companies um, a year or, or every couple of years, what is the hardest part? Um, of the entire process? Is it recruiting, for example, and partnering with a CEO? Or is it figuring out, since you, I'm sure you have several incredible um, insights and opportunities, figuring out the exact one that you want to uh, focus on and be able to focus? What do you kind of think about, you know, in the kind of studio model that, that you have, which is, you know, very concentrated, what is the hardest part for you and your team? A lot of it is hard <laughs> and fun. And I think the, the the challenge is actually what makes it so so exciting is you know you kind of hit it right and you're like wow we've you know we've really created magic. I would say I think the the bottleneck the limit the limiting region in the reaction is the exact right founding CEO for the right business. It's finding that match, but it's really on the talent side, and that's not to discount in any way. Getting to really interesting insights in large spaces is hard, and validating that, you know, you kind of have an idea of what we describe as the wedge thesis, but like the first couple of years, like knowing that you built something that is going to have real unit economics is really going to stand by itself and gets you, gives you the chance to go and take the big venture swing. Like that's all difficult, but I think our strong view is having all of that and then not having the right person is kind of not the right strategy for juxtapose. And in fact, 
that would kind of start to break the flywheel that we have, which is few things, doing them well, that working, that attracting other really great people and that flywheel going. And so for us, you know, it's, it's sometimes painful when you're sitting on something that you've spent 12 to 18 months doing work. You know you want to do it. Time is ticking by. Companies are getting built in, in the space. And you're just sitting there waiting to find the right person. But, you know, in our experience, getting that right person is so important that we have to do it. Yeah, no, for sure. For sure. Absolutely. What's one thing do you think that you would change about venture capital overall, in the whole business of venture? There are great venture firms. And I think venture capital right now is opening up a ton of opportunity for entrepreneurs. You know, someone with, you know, an idea, insights, hard work, you know, a couple of friends behind a computer can start a company. I think this is generally, it's an amazing asset class that's creating a lot of opportunity. I think to your question, maybe not necessarily something that would change, but something that does um, maybe frustrate me or give me angst is that venture that I think the actual true art of venture is, is, is about depth. And it's about deep knowledge. It's about understanding something in a way that other people don't, having a counterintuitive insight. You know, some people talk about narrative violations, like a violation around something that everything believes is true. It's really like a eureka insight. And I feel like right now, the market is a lot of noise. Everything is a soundbite. Everything is kind of 140 characters. And like in that world, it's hard to get your mind focused on trying to go really deep. And so if there's anything that I would, I would love to see is, is less noise and more folks like kind of seeking truth. Yeah, and I think that, and again, there's nothing wrong with this. Just, just a different way to do it. It just seems like there's also, you know, a lot of funds where are quite large funds, but in terms of your actual going deep aside of it, you know, they might not take a board seat, for example, even though they they made like a, a big investment into a company, or it might not even go, you know, that deep in terms of the actual that company itself. So it's pretty interesting what's been happening. What's one book that's inspired you personally, and one book that's inspired you professionally? You know, actually, there's a book that I just read, which is kind of sits at the juncture of both. So it's kind of a cop-out answer, but 4,000 Weeks by Oliver Berkman. And it's this interesting book. It's about a journalist's journey on thinking about time. And when you read the, the title, it kind of sounds like a self-help book around how you manage time. But it's actually secretly, a, it, it's kind of a, it's a philosophy book disguised as a self-help book. You know, I read it, you know, I think I, I read it about four months ago. And, you know, coming out of this period during you know, during COVID and post-COVID where time feels more and more abstract. You're in front of your computer, you're in front of Zooms all day and, you know, all the normal things of, of life, all the normal milestones and markers of life you don't have. It's really interesting. The book talks about not thinking about how you manage time, which makes time feel like a resource, something that needs to be controlled and more about thinking about yourself and your life actually just being time and that's it. And what that means about how you how you spend your time, you know what what counts, what doesn't count, and and I, I feel like it's just a I think it's a really interesting book as we continue to move this world where maybe you know you could spend your time behind something like a screen twenty four hours a day, and the way you know the reality of time feels less tangible, and it just really kind of gives you a bunch of different perspectives on how to think about time. Yeah, I really appreciate you. You're very original. I don't think we've had anyone mention 4,000 weeks, so I'm really excited to add that to our book list. My final question to you is, what's one piece of advice that you have for founders? I'm going to sound like a, a bit of a broken record here, because I, I think I've spoken about this a couple times now um, on this during this great conversation. But I would urge someone who's thinking about starting a business, or even in the process of thinking about a company they want to join, I would urge them to really look and seek the differentiated insight that either that company has or that they think they have when thinking about the thing they're going to start, right? And even if it's not a space per se, like 
what is it that you see in the market that other people will disagree with? And if you are right, is going to be worth a lot. I think there's, I think, again, going back to this point on there being a lot of noise, it often feels like there's, there's a lot of me too in the market. And there's a lot of, I think the space is interesting and hot, which again, I think is not bad from a, I want to experiment, I want to learn standpoint. I think this technology is really cool. I think really great businesses get built off of the backbones of insights that are either counterintuitive or that help to prove obsolete assumptions that others have, because then you could do your zigging when everyone else is zagging. And I think that's really valuable. No, I love that. I love that. I think that, that, that's a really, really great piece of advice. Thanks so much for sharing. Patrick, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you coming on the show. No, Mike, thanks for having me. This has been a ton of fun. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure chatting with Patrick. I hope you all enjoyed it as much as I did. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone. 